We are returning to our sermon series through Acts. We are in Acts 27. We're going to finish up Acts 27 this morning. We're picking up where we left off two weeks ago in verse 27. Just by way of reminder, Paul is on a ship on the way to Rome. Paul has advised the crew it was not wise to sail in the winter. They did it anyway. They have found themselves in a storm. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 27, read through the end of the chapter. We're 14 days into the storm. Before we read God's holy and errant and fallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray that he would illumine this, his word for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word, which was breathed out by your Spirit, now be spoken and be heard by each of us. By the power of your Spirit, give to us ears to hear and hearts to understand and quicken our spirits to obey. May we not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your name. Amen. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 27 of Acts, hear the word of God, it is written. When the 14th night had come, As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. In fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about To dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Literally there, it will save you. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. 
But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to safety, were brought safely to land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we have moved through the book of Acts, I hope that you have found Acts to be helpful in thinking about our duty as Christians to be missional people to take the gospel both across the street to our neighbors and to take it to the ends of the earth with intentionality. We have repeatedly seen in Acts the importance of our calling to be witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed in a way that all those who would have ears to hear it by the grace of God would be provided an opportunity to place faith in Jesus. We have seen those in the early church taking this calling seriously despite great opposition and at great personal risk to themselves. Likewise, I hope that you have found Acts to be helpful in thinking about the church community. We have seen rich portraits in Acts of how the church in the first century understood themselves to be a community of the redeemed who are called to do life together and to to love one another with all earnestness. We have seen their insistence as a community on being attentive to God's word, their intentionality in, in worshiping and praying together, their commitment to fellowship. We've seen the church discerning truth together and working out theological and practical issues of being the church and their union with one another that comes as a result of their union in Jesus Christ. And from this, we've seen how the early church was organized in order to carry out their God-given mission of being his redeemed people in the world. We've seen the creation of the office of deacon and the importance of the office of elder. So we have seen the church on mission, and we have seen the church in community. And through it all, we've seen God's almighty hand at work calling, shaping, guiding, and protecting his people. We have seen his sovereign plan of salvation being fulfilled, expanding his people from the Jews to people from many nations, tribes, and tongues. We have seen his Holy Spirit at work in powerful ways, filling and empowering his people and applying the saving work of Jesus to lost sinners who were dead in their iniquities. But this morning, I hope that we can see something else here in Acts 27, because there might be a question you're still wondering. What is our Christian responsibility to the world around us outside of the church community and outside of our proclamation of the gospel? The reality is that we aren't always gathered as a church community, are we? As as much as we would love to isolate ourselves from the world and just be together, that isn't what we're called to. 
We also aren't always evangelizing when we're in the public sphere. We go about our lives of labor and leisure as customers, consumers, and as citizens, as those who are engaged in the larger community. And so there are many aspects of our lives that we have to consider in terms of our faith. Our faith does not only instruct our time together as believers, nor should our public witness be limited to our evangelism through the explicit proclamation of the gospel, as important as that is. So what does it look like to be a Christian in the workplace and in the marketplace? What does it look like to be a Christian at the ball field or at the gym? What does it look like to be a Christian and a good citizen of this nation? And what we discover this morning is that as important as a Christian community is, it's not the whole of our lives. As important as evangelism is, it's not the whole of our public witness. God intends for us as his people to be engaged in other ways and to be a blessing to the world in other ways. So what are our responsibilities to the world? What are God's purposes for us? What other functions do we as God's people serve out in the world? Acts 27 can help us begin to answer that question. For it provides us a really helpful picture of our calling as Christians in the midst of the world. And we pick up this morning in chapter 27 where John left off two Sundays ago with the Apostle Paul sailing for Rome. We might notice, we might notice that there wasn't any explicit evangelism on Paul's behalf. In fact, the entire narrative of the journey to Rome, which lasts well into the 28th chapter, there aren't any references to Paul giving an explicit proclamation to the good news in Jesus Christ to those he was with. He isn't ever shown preaching the gospel to his shipmates. Isn't that interesting? Is that what we would expect from Paul? But what we are shown instead is a man who understands that he and all 275 other passengers were all on that ship together. They were all on this journey together. His survival depended on the others on that ship with him, and the decisions of those around Paul affected him for better or worse. We remember from two weeks ago that Paul had advised the crew and Centurion not to Uh, not to continue on their journey, that it was unwise. He urged them and said to say harbored for the winter because of the danger winter storms posed in that region. And Paul's advice was promptly dismissed. They continued on with their journey. And as it turned out, Paul was correct in his warning. Sure enough, a storm hit as they sailed along Crete. And here they are in verse 26, 14 days later, blown way off course, battered and beaten by the storm, struggling to survive. But the one thing that Luke makes abundantly clear is that Paul's presence and persistence in seeking the well-being of all those around him provided a means of deliverance for everyone on that ship. And we're meant to see that without Paul's presence on that vessel, they were all doomed. And we see that again and again in this passage. Had he not alerted the centurion to the crew's 
plans to abandon ship in verses 30 and 31, they would have all been in deep trouble. Had Paul not urged everyone on the ship to stop and eat in verses 33 through 38, then they would have all been in deep trouble. Had Paul not established a relationship of respect and admiration with the centurion, then we're told in verses 42 and 43 that all the prisoners would have been in deep trouble. Paul plays a practical role in his shipmate's preservation. Now, we could simply write this off to the fulfillment of God's promise to Paul to get to Rome, as as well as the promise that Paul had shared with his shipmates in verse 24, that they would all arrive in Rome safely with him. But actually, what Luke has provided for us is a perfect picture of the world, the world that is lost in the darkness trying to get its bearings, but, but groping around helplessly, struggling in a raging storm, prone to deterioration and self-destruction at every turn. That's what we see here. You see it? We, we start in verse 27, in the middle of the night, midnight, blown way off course with the soldiers literally trying to figure out how deep the sea is below them. We finish with a shipwreck, the bow caught fast in the reef, the cern being smashed to pieces by the waves. Is is that not an apt image of the world, which even as it fancies itself to be so enlightened, always ends up in a mess of its own making? Isn't it the picture of a world that has been subjected to futility and is groaning under the weight of sin? But Luke shows us something else here. He also shows us the beautiful picture of how God uses his people to bless and preserve others. God is not just a God of saving grace, bringing about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. God is also a God who provides and is good to all his creatures in innumerable ways because God does truly love his creation, even when his creation rebels against him. This is what we call God's common grace. It's a grace that isn't just reserved for his elect as saving grace is, but it is a blessing that nonetheless reveals God's character and displays his glory to all. Now, common grace isn't a phrase that appears in Scripture, but we see it evidenced throughout Scripture. We see it in places like Psalm 145, where we are told the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. That isn't referring to God's saving grace in which one is delivered from sin and evil through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a grace that is common to the multitudes for whom God provides the basic necessities of life. Physical sustenance, shelter, clothing, loving relationships. And as Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is common grace. Another way we see God's common grace is through the institutions that God 
created, which functioned to provide his blessings within societies and cultures for both the believer and the unbeliever. For instance, God has established governments, which are gifts to people when they properly function to establish and maintain order, to provide protection by the creation and enforcement of laws. God has also established the institution of marriage and the family from the beginning of his creation, which was meant to provide a means by which believer and unbeliever alike can enter into a committed, loving relationship, procreate and raise children in a safe and nurturing environment. As John Stott noted, these institutions were provided by God in his common grace to curb man's selfish tendencies and to prevent society from slipping into anarchy. These institutions exert a wholesome influence in the community. Nevertheless, as Stott continued, God intends the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. And this is what we see here in Acts 27. And we need to recognize that this wasn't just Paul that God worked through in this way. It was God's promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. There is the promise of salvation here for those who would become the spiritual seed of Abraham by faith, but there's more than that. We see this playing out in places like Genesis 39.5, where we are told that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, that's Potiphar's house, for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. In his common grace, God influences and enriches those around his people through them. And likewise, his people are blessed as God creates and upholds stable and prosperous societies around them in which they can thrive. We see this double blessing in Acts 27 as Paul's life was preserved by God and everyone on that ship with him on account of him. But this didn't end in the apostolic age. The same thing applies to us. God intends to use our presence in the world in the same ways as we see here in Acts 27. And it might be that the world around us ignores our calls to come to Christ. It might be that it ignores our offer of godly wisdom. But that doesn't mean that we should stand aside and let the world around us deteriorate and perish. After all, we are all on the same boat. We're all in this together. As God instructed his exiled people through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As was true of Paul here in Acts 27, our well-being and the well-being of those around us is inseparably connected. And it could be that they are being physically preserved on account of us. So what can we learn from this passage? How can we serve as a blessing to those around us? I, I want to give two, two ways. First, 
We seek to influence the world in godly ways by living as salt and light. Second, we provide a calm, thoughtful, and grace-filled presence. So first, we seek to influence the world in godly ways by living as salt and light. Even as our hope is not in this world, even as we set our eyes on the world to come, that doesn't mean that, that we have given up on seeking to shape this world for good. Now, our expectations should be moderated by a recognition that the world around us loves darkness, is under the reign of the prince of the power of the air, is prone to decay, but nonetheless, we also understand that godly influence is beneficial to all. Paul understood that here in Acts 27. He wasn't naively optimistic that everything would turn out well or that people would make good decisions or be loving and kind to one another. He wasn't under the illusion that people would willingly listen to his godly advice, but Paul continued to offer words of wisdom and to act in ways that demonstrated love and concern for those around him. He did this with persistence and graciousness. In these ways, he modeled the love of God in Jesus Christ, and eventually, we see that he was successful in his influence. Even if it didn't win those around him for Christ, it did win them over in a way that created blessing for all. So we shouldn't be naively optimistic that the world will recognize and submit to the wisdom that we might share. But we should understand that historically, the church has had tremendous impact on the world around it. It's been a powerful influence through the church that has helped to establish widespread education and healthcare. It has worked to affirm the rights of women and to eliminate slavery. It has encouraged technological and scientific advancements, has increased productivity in the economy by placing a high value on work and thrift and honesty. The, the church has had success in influencing the world because God ordained it to be so in making his people to be salt and light. This is the identity that Jesus has given to us. It, it isn't what we are meant to become. It is what Jesus says we are. Listen to his words in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is what we are by nature of being redeemed and brought into union with Christ. This is what we are by nature of being citizens of the kingdom of God, yet still living in this fallen world. And he tells his disciples this even as he has literally just told them that they will be reviled and persecuted on account of him. It is vitally important for us to understand this identity if God is going to use us both as instruments of his saving grace and of his common grace. If we are to be influencers for good in the world around us, then we must understand and live out this identity. So what does it mean to be salt and light? Well, we use salt to add flavor to things, don't we? And certainly our presence in the world should add flavor. It should add the flavor of love and humility. 
It should add the flavor of kindness and gentleness. These things sprinkled into a community add enjoyment and goodness for all as we selflessly serve those around us. Our presence should also add flavor to culture as we contribute, for instance, to the beauty of the world through things like artistic expression. The church used to do this, didn't it? It it used to contribute in significant ways to adding beauty to to society through music, through visual art forms, through painting and sculpture and architecture, through drama. Beauty isn't necessary but it adds to the enjoyment and goodness of life. We are to be salt in these ways. But salt also served other very important functions in the ancient world. For instance, it was used as a preservative. Meat is cured using salt. This is what people did before the advent of refrigeration. It kept meat from spoiling. Well, how are we to be like salt in this regard? Sinclair Ferguson suggests that our lives should have a preserving impact upon society that, if left to itself, will rot and deteriorate. That's what we see in this passage, isn't it? Without the influence of the gospel, society will suffer moral decay and become putrid, unfit for the consumption of good men and women. And we certainly see this very thing happening in this passage As we've already noted, at every turn, the the world around Paul was prone to deterioration and self-destruction. Paul is very much acting as a preserving agent on the ship for those around him. He kept them all alive by working to prevent the crew from abandoning them on a lifeboat. He kept them all alive by encouraging them to stop and eat. He, He kept all the prisoners alive simply because the centurion had taken a liking to him. Now, I don't think it's hard for us to look around right now and see the deterioration of our society. There's division, divisiveness, distrust. There's animosity and angst. We see moral decay, psychological decay, social decay. We see the basic foundations of family and government being shaken and destroyed. We've seen the economy begin to break apart. All of these things are interconnected against this decay and deterioration and self-destruction, Christians, the church, are called to act as preservatives. Even when it seems like we're fighting a losing battle, but here is the reality. Over the past few months, there have been thousands, thousands of fewer abortions because Christians kept fighting to abolish abortion here in the United States. Lives have, in a very real way, been preserved. And now isn't the time to give up. Now more than ever is a time for Christians to demonstrate through their living and fight for healthy marriages and family structures. We're meant to demonstrate and fight for strong education. We're meant to demonstrate and fight for reconciliation in our communities. We're meant to demonstrate the importance of hard work and responsible economics. We have a civil responsibility to elect officials who hold our values. There's an election this week. I hope that we will... I hope that we will go and vote. Our society will be blessed and preserved through our witness in this way. This is one of our callings as God's people. Now, salt was used in another way. It was used to render the ground infertile. The earth was salted. 
That prevented weeds from growing. It was also used by armies to destroy the land of their enemies, thus rendering the ground unproductive and prohibiting the growth of crops. That's how they starved their enemies. It's a negative application, but it can be seen as positive if what is being grown is toxic, right? So as Sinclair Ferguson notes, this is precisely what a Christian does when he takes his stand for God in society. He makes that society, be it his friends in school, his fellow students at college, his co-workers, or, or those with whom he plays sports, less fertile soil for ungodly influences. Of course, Ferguson adds, that that in itself will not regenerate his society, but it will make it more difficult for sinful attitudes and habits and words to become the norm among his friends and colleagues. So here's a great challenge for us. We're called to be salt, to preserve good, to restrain evil in the world around us, to prevent rot, to serve, to weed out and inhibit the growth of that which is evil and unhealthy and destructive for our culture. And we are called to do this in our places of work. In the break rooms and in the boardrooms, we're called to do this in our schools. We're called to do this in the public square and in politics. But it isn't easy. I remember working an IT job on campus when I was getting my undergraduate degree, and there weren't many Christians where I worked. The place was filled with unsavory language, unhealthy relationships, academic elitism. It was not only a difficult place to openly profess to be a Christian, it was also a difficult place to seek to exercise positive influence. Because what are most folks doing in an environment like that? They're either discussing work, or they're telling crude jokes, or they're gossiping, or they're complaining. Complaining about their work, complaining about their coworkers, complaining about their clients, complaining about their spouses, complaining about their children. And as a Christian, I, I wanted to be kind and gracious and friendly, but I didn't want to participate in any of that. Man, it is difficult not to get sucked in, though, isn't it? Jesus warns us not to lose our saltiness or we become useless. And one way to lose our saltiness is to get diluted and polluted by the world. So what is a Christian to do to exercise influence, to be salty salt? Well, we can form alliances with fellow believers. There is strength in numbers. We can watch our tongues, guard our ears. Instead of complaining, here's an idea. We can be intentional to be encouragers and freely and openly share how much we love our spouse and our children. We can share how much joy they bring to our lives. We can share how much we enjoy our work. We can tell of and show forth the peace and joy we have in Christ. We can pray for our coworkers. And then something amazing begins to happen. Our coworkers begin to be careful around us. 
careful not to complain, careful not to gossip, careful not to use crude language. As Sinclair Ferguson states, your companions will moderate their language. The name of Jesus will not be so easily blasphemed. Those with whom you work will develop something of a conscience about the standard of their work. The conversations of men or women will be brought under control. Respect for others will be more common. Your life will save others from yielding to the immoral pressures by which our contemporary world is characterized. When you are the salt of the earth, you preserve society. But we aren't just salt. As John Stott reminds us, the church is set in the world with a double role as salt to arrest or at least to hinder the process of social decay and as light to dispel the darkness. So what light does, right? It brings clarity. It illumines with truth. It chases away the confusion and chaos caused by darkness. Paul wasn't afraid to shine the light of truth here, was he? He wasn't forceful or rude, but he also didn't let things happen under the cover of darkness. He worked to shed light, to expose evil plots, to disclose hidden doubt, to uncover health, unhealthy patterns. When lies threatened to make things come unglued at the seams, Paul worked to shine the light of truth and love and grace. He worked to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus also warns us not to hide the light that exists in us by way of the Holy Spirit. If, if we are going to be used to bless others, then we must shine the light in order that we can be, it can be seen by all. So even as we might think of ourselves as small and insignificant, Christians really should strive to help to shape laws and customs and beliefs of the world around us. We should call out falsehoods. We should lift up truth. Remember, salt also seems small and insignificant, but a little salt can go a long way. And light is the same way. A little light in a pitch black darkness can work to bring clarity. It should be our prayer then that our presence has an edifying effect in the surrounding culture. We should strive to influence the moral framework of the culture in which we live. We should work to see the advance of goodness and beauty and truth. Finally, really briefly, we provide a calm, thoughtful, and grace-filled presence. We need to be salt and light, but we have to do it in a way that those around us have the best chance of receiving it. We have to know not just what to speak, but how to speak and when to speak. Paul spoke out of a deep confidence in God's sovereign control. So there wasn't any anxiety in his voice about the chaos around him. He, he served as a calming presence and it made people attentive to him. He spoke out of a settled resolve that God was for him and that God intended good for him. People who have a very negative view of the future will bend their ears when someone speaks a positive, hopeful word. He spoke out of a knowledge that God had forgiven him the worst of sinners and that he was able to relate to others as God had related to him. If we are to approach one another, we must do so with humility and forbearing love. Then those around us will be more likely to listen. Brothers and sisters, we're all on this boat called earth together. And God is calling us to be a demonstration of his kingdom on earth to help preserve 
all of the world to restrain evil for the benefit and blessing of all. It serves to give people a taste of God's goodness and who knows, maybe it will produce in those around us a willingness to hear and receive the gospel when it is clearly proclaimed to them. But ultimately, it's about giving God the glory he is due. It's about showing forth his character. That's what the church is meant to be in the world. So let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us be zealous for good works, knowing that in Christ, our labor is not in vain. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your saving grace to us in Jesus Christ, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we thank you for that deliverance that sets us free from sin and frees us to live to your glory. Lord, we also thank you for your common grace, the common grace of daily bread. Lord, we find that in you we have an abundance of provision. And so, Lord, even as we prepare ourselves now to come to your table, Lord, to receive you in these elements of bread and and juice, Lord. I pray that we would be out in the world and we would make present Christ in the world through our living. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to shine the light of your love. Help us to be salt to the earth. And Lord, I pray that you would, through our prayers and through our actions, Lord, that you would restore the foundations of this nation. You bring revival here. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. Thank you.